0: Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review so others can find the show too. We regularly have guests from WSU and the USDA ARS on the show, but today is one of a three-episode series I have with colleagues from the University of Idaho for an extended discussion on the role of crop diversity and soil health. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Brooks. Aaron is a professor at the University of Idaho in the Soil and Water Systems Department. He was trained as an agricultural engineer with a B.S. from Washington State University, an M.S. from the University of Minnesota, and a Ph.D. from the University of Idaho. He has been at the University of Idaho since 1998. His research generally focuses on adaptive management strategies in agroecosystems, particularly related to water and nutrient availability, storage, and transport. He often collaborates with WSU and ARS research scientists in large interdisciplinary research projects, many of which have included extensive field experimentation, complemented with the development and assessment of computer models and decision support tools. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Drew. So, we heard from Kendall Call in the last podcast uh, that there may be opportunities to start incorporating cover cropping into our wheat based systems, not only in our high precipitation zones, but also, a potential replacement of summer fallow. From your perspective, what do you see as the major advantages and
1: disadvantages of incorporating cover or forage cropping into this region? Well, I think Kendall did a good job of describing the challenges. First of all, in our dryland system, particularly in the low and intermediate precip zones, the the greatest challenges really involves issues related to timing, storage, and availability of water. Many growers have heard the success stories of some of the pioneers and of cover cropping and then regenerative ag movement, such as Gay Brown, and he's come to this region to talk to a lot of these growers. However, the Palouse has really unique climate. We have these wet winters and dry summers, and so we have some unique timing challenges that really limits our ability to directly adopt strategies employed in North Dakota or, or the Midwest, where we see this happening more often. Specifically, we have questions, how do we get a a crop established in the fall in our dry soils and and what are the impacts of a cover crop on our primary cash crop, really the the winter wheat, especially if we're looking to replace fallow with these uh, cover crops. Also, if you're looking at replacing an existing crop in the crop rotation, like such as you're trying to take out a spring wheat or spring cereal, then there's also an economic consideration that really you're not going to get the revenue from that crop. So. This is why many growers are looking at other strategies that attempt to minimize the costs associated with the cover cropping, and this is by considering you could consider as a forage crop, and then you'll you'd graze it or you bale it, um, so redeem some economic revenue. Um, so we're really still learning about these potential long-term benefits. We think there are many in uh, benefits of soil health, water retention. Um, increased soil carbon, resilience to heat stress, drought, weeds, diseases, and I, th- I think that we're going to see those uh, more evident with time. Um, but as Kendall suggested, and, and, and I think we hear from Dane and Sanford, we're seeing some initial evidence that some of these changes occur even within a couple of years following the cover crops.
0: Okay, so um, I was in western Nebraska for 22 years as a dryland cropping system specialist, and. and- one of my goals was to try to minimize or even eliminate summer fallow, um, and we didn't quite get there. There's some real challenges, you say, but that's a, a summer precip zone, and this is a a winter precip zone, which just changes the, right. the framework a whole lot. So, yeah, trying to deal with those issues, um, we could we could grow summer crops, you know, fairly well because we got the rain when the in the right. heat of the summer. And here, that those summer crops are pretty pretty difficult to do right. without using the stored water that you want to save for your fall crop, right? So can can you tell us more about some of the logistical challenges and solutions that, that your team has been considering and evaluating to minimize the risks of including of cover crop and crop rotations across the plus?
1: Yeah. So there are several management op- options that we've kind of started to look at that growing might consider with cover crops. As I mentioned, the, the first consideration is whether the treat the cover crop truly as a cover crop or as a forage or a green manure crop. Uh, if a girl will be baling or grazing the crop, um, which is one of the options, then the girl will want to select a cover crop mix that really provides the greatest protein and fiber to feed an animal as opposed to maybe you're thinking of as a cover crop as a primary goal of increase organic matter and maybe feed the soil and the soil microbiology. Um, the second really consideration is really to adopt a fall seeded crop or a spring crop. Uh, so the people have been doing it as, as a spring cover crop or fall, and, and really the impact really is in, in terms of the winter tolerance. Um, and another consideration uh, is really when to terminate the, the cover crop, which we, we kind of got into with the modeling quite a bit, um, to make sure really that there's enough water available for the winter wheat crop, particularly in these drier zones of the Palouse Um and really, the last one we've kind of looked into quite a bit is really whether to fertilize the cover crop or not. Um, this adds additional costs, but if you're looking at greater growth, fertilizing the cover crop makes sense um and so we're trying to use these crop models to to really look at these different options and uh, and really investigate the viability and and maybe the some of the impacts of these decisions okay so so tell us more about the crop model uh use and what sort of confidence
0: you have in the reliability of these models um I think a lot of people out there often view models a bit skeptically, probably because they don't really understand what's
1: behind them. Um, so yeah. tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of skepticism. And, I, and I, I try to explain to my students that computer models are really the tools to better understand and mimic natu- a natural system. But, and they're, g- they're good at gaining insight in some of the more complex responses in a, a cropping system that you couldn't uh, you know, uh, find out in a uh, field experiment. Um, And we can actually look at how potential changes uh, a management practice might have to that system or looking at a change in a weather pattern. Um, And I think it is good to have a healthy amount of skepticism in models as they don't truly represent the complexity of natural systems. Um, I like the term that you hear oftentimes is that all models are wrong and some models are useful. And I, I agree that this is probably a good perspective to have. I find a good approach really to understand a system is having a good balance between uh, modeling and field measurements. Um, and this is really the approach we took in this this LIT project that we've been working on where we enf- uh, emphasize both field, field, field measurement and, and modeling. So yeah, the, the model we used is the CropSys model. And I think you've had some other guests on here that maybe have talked a little bit about CropSys. The, the USDRS uh, team has been using it. And it really was developed at, here at Washington State University. In the biological systems engineering department, um, largely by Dr. Claudio Stockel and his programmer, Roger Nelson. Um, So it's been around for about 40 years. And really, they've used it. And it's a pretty effective tool at at, um, predicting crop response and water uh, and nitrogen stress uh, from the main crops who grow in the Palouse. And so we, in this project, we used uh, a pretty extensive field experiment set up with replicated strip trials um, and to really compare business-as-usual cropping strategies that we're currently employing now to these aspirational, you know, that include the replacing fallow uh, or a, a spring cereal crop with a cover crop or a forage crop in this rotation. And then uh, documenting that, we had the data over a four-year period where we measured made these measurements in the field, and uh, it just so happened that we had... <laughs> you know 2021 is a big drought year and 2020 was one of the best years we've ever had on the palouse and so it's a good data set to really test the model and and really ex, ex, uh, to test the extremes of these cropping systems yeah
0: I, uh, when i was in western nebraska i had a similar uh, we were looking at dryland corn and i planted it in i think it was 1999 which was one of the wettest years and my pop- i was trying to figure out the best population and my highest, highest population wasn't high enough. We were still going straight up, and then the next year was a drought year, and my straight my I didn't have a low enough population straight down. So I I used a model called APSIM that developed in Australia, just to put like fifty or sixty years of weather data in there to get okay over a ten year period, yeah. <laughs> how might this turn out? So the it it actually was pretty useful because I think it kind of. Yes, you will have these extremes and one one year, one will work, but over a long time, these are the odds of you doing yeah. well. And that's kind of what you're doing here with this model is running lots of years and taking your data.
1: That's exactly right. And that's why I think that's why the models are useful. We know that they don't replicate the real world exactly. But boy, if we wait on field experiments to, to give us the science to make a management decision, then we'll never make management decisions because every field is unique and every year is somewhat unique. And so we can do the crop modeling to kind of extend that out. How well did the model perform for you? Well, I was actually pretty impressed at how well the model performed. And this was a modeling work that um, was largely done by a, my grad student who just defended a few weeks ago a master's thesis. Um, and we know with models, they can be calibrated to fit a single output. Um, and that's probably a, one of the reasons why I get kind of a bad reputation As you tweak a model and you get this out, uh, this, you know, matching up maybe crop yield. But then the question becomes whether you tweak the right parameter and are you getting the right answer for the right reasons? And so without amount of data we had in this project with all the different strip trials. And then the the two years we had, at least uh, some of the wet and dry years, we really had a pretty robust assessment of the model. And we found them the good agreement with one amount of crop yield, it went pretty well, the biomass, the nitrogen removed by the biomass, and really the change in moisture over the growing season. Um, I'd like to see a little bit better accuracy in getting some of the soil inorganic nitrogen. Um, But overall, I was pretty impressed with the model, and I had pretty good confidence in really the ability to replicate these what I think are the key issues related to replacing fallow uh, with these cover crops.
0: So what were you able to uh, do with this calibrated model? And what did you learn about the
1: challenges and benefits of cover or forage cropping in the Palouse? Yeah, so th- so once we had this idea, okay, now this cover this calibrated model works. It seems to work over this four year period, and this is when a-, a model really becomes useful. You have this uh, it's this calibrated model that we have confidence in. So we started looking at the management scenarios, and what we decided to do is like, well, let's feed it weather data from 1980 to 2010. Let's look over a 30 year period, and we'll just put in these different cropping rotations. Um, and so we looked at replacing fowl with a cover crop. Um, uh, and how it might first re- reduce the winter wheat yields—that's a key question. Um, and we focused on the St. John area; that was where our research site was at. And in this area, as you may know, that you know we have a growers use a three-year rotation where they do two crops and they do summer fallow one out of three years. Um, and as you might expect, with uh, with replacing fallow, there were certainly dry years where, this growing a cover crop instead of keep it in fallow did reduce the, the winter wheat yield on the subsequent year. Um, but in of, according to the model, um, this only happened half the time or even less than half the time. Um, and if you think about this year, the 2022 year, all this rain, this might be a year where growing a cover crop instead of fallow may really make a lot of sense. Um, so this was encouraging. And, and the, the lack of the uh, impact on winter wheat yields is partly due to the fact that summer fallow really isn't a completely efficient approach um, as much as we try, we still try to, uh, summer fall can lose a lot of water over the summer itself, just from evaporation and things. So, so then we use the model to try to explore how uh, a grower might minimize the impact of this wheat crop. So, what are the options if, if you don't want to minimize this? And that was really this tool would be this using a termination date. So, when do you terminate the cover crop? Um, and if you terminate it early um, before the, all the soil moisture is depleted, then, then there'd probably be a less of an impact on the winter wheat. And, um, and we found that's exactly right when we found that you could avoid that whole winter wheat hit by moving the cover crop termination date up to two to two to four weeks beforehand. Uh, in the simulation, we generally terminated the cover crop around July 8th, but we could almost eliminate all the winter wheat uh, reductions by terminating it by June 8th. Um, so now the downside of that would be then if you terminate the cover crop early, then you don't get quite the biomass production. Um, and so if you're trying to... Uh, graze it or bale it, then you're not getting quite as much of the biomass and there's just less organic matter going back into the soil. But that is certainly an option.
0: Okay. Um, this, this sounds uh, pretty encouraging actually that you, as much as half the years or more you don't have a, a reduction, uh, suggests farmers could essentially use termination date as the means of water management to minimize the risk of impacts to their winter, winter wheat crop.
1: Yeah, so that's exactly right. And, and and if you've seen around here in the last five to six years, I know that more and more farmers are putting in soil moisture probes and probes that'll uh, essentially sample the entire soil profile and, and that data sent to their phones. And so they could actually watch these the soil moisture depletion during a year and say, hey, this is a dry year, we're just not getting the moisture, I need to terminate early. Or if they're doing it like this year in 2022, boy, you could extend that cover crop into July if there's plenty of soil moisture and and they'll have less likely impact on the, the winter wheat um, coming the next year. Yeah. So I would guess that the cover crop's going to use the shallower water and
0: leave the deep, deeper water for for later use by the crop. But how do you get How do you get that surface water replaced so you can get a a successful start to your your following winter week? That's right.
1: That's right. And that is the challenge, right? The Midwest gets those summer rains and they can essentially seed after the combine. And so here in the Palouse, we still need a little bit of moisture so that it would be seeding deep to try to get some good growth established. And you still need a little bit. So that's still one of those challenges to get that establishment.
0: So what other management options have you uh, looked at with the model?
1: Yeah, so uh, in addition to the water, we were kind of looking at the, the implications on fertilizer management. And so depending on whether the grower adopts a fall seeded cover crop or a spring cover crop and the type of cover crop mix, there are um, some fertilizer options. A, a fall seeded cover crop that is resistant to winter kill may be, may be more reliant on cereals that it could experience nitrogen stress if they're if they're not balanced with legumes or fertilizers. So fertilizing the crop... In the model, when we looked at it, did increase biomass and indicates that growers should potentially consider fertilizing these cover crops if they don't have high residual nitrogen in their soils. Interestingly, if if we baled the cover crop and you, with baling the cover crop, you have less organic matter going to the soil. Um, and we assumed essentially 80% of the, the cover crop was baled off. Um, really only resulted in slight reductions in our long-term soil uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer requirements. So you actually um, you are getting, and we saw in the model getting more nitrogen mineralization, so more organic sources of nitrogen. Um, so um, even the baling didn't seem to indicate uh, uh, an increased need for nitrogen fertilizers.
0: Okay, so so if
1: fertilizer prices
0: continue to rise as as they have this past year, I would presume that growers could change up the cover crop mix to rely more on legumes, and in the long run, these cover crop rotations should decrease the amount of fertilizer that the growers would need to apply to their subsequent
1: winter wheat crop. Yeah, that's right. Overall, we found, overall we found these, these rotations were more water efficient as more of our annual precipitation went towards transpiration or increasing biomass and evaporation. And, and we found less water leached out the bottom of the root zone. So this is, this is quite a win-win for both the growers, the soil, and the environment. Yeah,
0: I would say, you know, another uh, aspect of cover cropping that's catching on in the weed science circles is just weed competition. So as our herbicides become less and less effective due to herbicide resistance, people are looking more and more at cover crops as part of that entire package for weed control.
1: Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the idea of the project. We're on this landscapes and transition. And so the idea is our landscape here is going to adapt. We are going to see this... You know, in, in, in uh herbicide-resistant weeds, we see soil pH drop. We have organic matter dropping. And I think the farming systems we're going to see are going to be changing in the next 10 to 20 years. It'll be interesting to see what it looks like uh, over time.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's been a couple of years since I saw these models. But I think the prediction is um, we're expected to have warmer, wetter winters and hotter, drier summers, which might push us more towards – winter crops like winter pea and the rotation and away from some of our spring crops.
1: That's right. And I think in the annual precip zone, we see this year, even Latoc County, we have a lot of fields that got planted very late or didn't get planted at all. And so I think fall seeded crops, perennial crops, uh, cover crops, I do think things are going to be changing up a bit um, going forward. Well,
0: Aaron, this, this is really interesting work. Um, I I like the use of modeling to help us try to make some of these decisions because our climate's quite variable on top of being uh, challenging compared to much of the country. Uh, So I look forward to seeing what you do with this and how you translate to growers uh, in this part of the world. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on here, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheatbeat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear in future episodes, please email me at drew.lion. That's L-Y-O-N at W-S-U dot edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.
1: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.